My name is James Callis. I play Dr. Gaius Baltar on Battlestar Galactica, and you're listening to Galactica Quorum. Previously on the Galactica Quorum. I was a little shocked that they were handpicked by Adama to go on this mission. So Adama's not going to handpick a bunch of sissy-ass bitches. And they were all whining. But I suppose as well, what's happening is, over the course of the series, this man's actually getting a heart. He's been a bit heartless before. Heartless, vain, narcissistic, with uh, no consequences whatsoever at the beginning of the miniseries. And now he's like with everybody else. Are you knocking Hilo? I am, for this one time. <laughs> See, I don't criticize, just leave. Things to do today. Convert, poop ship, check. Hello, and welcome to the Galactica Quorum. This is episode number 42. We're a fracking podcast about Battlestar Galactica. My name is Brian, and with me today is... It's Michelle! It's Jason! Thank you. And I should be in a better mood, because this episode was better. We have a website. It's galacticacorum.com. There you'll find some forums. We have... Links to our RSS, where you'll find this podcast. That's, by the way, the fastest way to get our podcast. Plug that into iTunes or listen to our episodes on the website. We also have presence on Facebook and MySpace. And we even have a tip jar on our website if you want to give us a donation. Or buy a t-shirt. Yeah, we also have t-shirts, too, that have our, our slogan. It's a freaking podcast. Right. Con season is coming up. The one that we've been mentioning quite a bit over the past several episodes is finally coming close. That's the Wrath of Khan. That's in Panama City, Florida. That one's the end of this month. May 30th through June 1st. And that will feature the guests of Tom Panicat, Aaron Douglas, and Richard Hatch. So if you can get down there. I know there's some people from colonialfleet.org. That's the costuming and uh, prop site. I know a bunch of people from that are planning to meet up and go down there. So it could be a lot of fun. Let me get to some email. Okay, this one comes from Bill. After watching this week's episode, The Road Less Travel, here's my take on Starbucks' role. I don't think she's the 12th Cylon. Rather, I'm wondering if she isn't the 13th. Leoban seems to know or suspect more about her situation than he has let on. He asked her about how nothing seems to feel the same anymore, insinuating that she has altered fundamentally, and said that he sees her as an angel, quote-unquote, which suggests that she has transcended her original nature. Like Apollo, we saw that Viper explosion, so it's likely that the person who has returned to Galactica is not the same physical being as the one who left. And we know that Cylons have the ability to download consciousness from their organic beings to new bodies. And that Starbucks spent some time in a medical scientific facility. I mean, like we had brought up before that she might be a clone or... When they mentioned angels, and someone emailed us talking about Head 6 and the reference of her being an angel or a guiding angel, it makes me wonder if there's some relationship between... The head six angel and the Starbuck theory of being now a guiding angel. I've always thought it would be a cool twist if the head six, sure, is like some sort of like angelic figure, but not a good one, like more of a demonic, a devil. Right. Just playing on if the Cylon god is really not a good guy, like he's Lucifer or in the pantheon of the gods, he's like one of the gods who's like the bad one. Who knows? Only the writers. And maybe they don't even know. (laughs) Although at this point, they better. 
Next email comes from Britt. Watching the last episode, Escape Velocity, I had a question occur to me that I hadn't really considered before. Do human-like models of Cylons age like humans? Are there any child Leobans, any young Cavils? No. The catalyst for this thought was how Ty kept seeing his dead wife when he looked at Caprica 6. I wondered for a moment Ellen Ty could have been an older 6. I don't think that was the intent of the producers for the scene, but it did make me wonder. If Sharon yeah. doesn't age as Terrell does, what does that mean for their respective hybrid children? Didn't when they blow up the resurrection ship, the CGI was like basically all adult-sized bodies flying out yeah. in space? Yeah. I so. mean, unless maybe they do age, it's just they're not in that body long enough to age. Yeah, maybe they, maybe they start out as adults and they can age. See, Cavill's old. And when Cavill resurrects, he resurrects as old. Problem is, like, the ones that resurrect, the original seven, they have died and come back so many times. So sure, their body would be fresh when it came back, but the final five, they haven't. So we do see Tyrrell looking a little older and stauncher than he was in the miniseries. And Anders probably had a history dating back to his collegiate days when he was playing Pyramid. The point is that those guys might be unique in aging, and that might be what Leoben said when he said the line, what they might have seen witnessed over time. Perhaps that means that they are unique and that they start their life either really, really early and they age up like a human would, or just they've been around for a long time and they have had the opportunity to age, whereas the original seven have not yet because they keep dying and resurrecting. This one's from Nicholas. He was watching with his wife and he writes, We got to the Woman King last night and she caught the fact that there were previously on scenes we never saw. Later, when Athena offers to bring her clothes, I brought up the fact that Six was in a spaghetti strap shirt thing and that you guys had joked, as a guy, it's great, but anyway, she said the solution was simple. To show previously on, Six says to Athena, I don't want your ugly clothes. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> One more email from Cheryl regarding Baltar going to see Six. He cannot do that because Rosalind remembered seeing him in Caprica with the tall blonde before the bombing. She was trying to connect him with Six. When Rosalind asked him about it, he denied it. If he goes to see Caprica 6, that would be proof enough for Rosalind to connect him with Caprica 6, the defense espionage, and the start of the war. And Rosalind would have Gaius airlocked before Lee could annoyingly butt in. I don't think that's the reason. They know he did bad stuff. Rosalind knows it. She knows she's gu he's guilty on some level. They're not going to try him again in double jeopardy. I just think that, for whatever reason, it's a writing reason that they're keeping them apart. It's just he can't... There's no way he can get access to her. I agree. I'm okay. saying that he doesn't think about her at all. And the question we had was, we we're trying to remember from the 14 months ago when this uh, show was on the air, was there actually evidence in a scene that we knew that he had confirmation that she was on the ship? I don't think there was. I think at some point off camera, Romo would have been like, they have a six in the cell that they're going to use to testify against us. We have to lay out a strategy in case that happens. Yeah, but we can't prove that though. Well, no, we can't, but as we know, there's very little on these ships that is kept secret. People knew Baltar was on the ship. People know Baltar has a pirate radio broadcast. They're not going to keep it secret that they have a, a six on board, and he would know. My question is, why doesn't he think about her? I just think it's because it's Baltar. Yeah, but he's a reformed Baltar now. No, he's not. You don't think he is? I think he's back. If it's you, Baltar. If you watch Baltar now, doesn't he remind you of Baltar in the very beginning in the miniseries when he's talking on that TV show and he's just sitting there kind of all smug and kind of, oh, yes, this is what I did and I'm all great and whatever. That's how he's coming across again. I see it differently. I see him actually have gone through some sort of, like James Callis said, he had an epiphany. I, I think he's sincere in this 
current role that he's playing. I don't think he's just putting on a face to these people because he wants their attention and he wants their adoration and he wants them to love him and he wants to stick it to Rosalind. I think he really believes it. I think all this stuff is genuine. I really do. I think he does believe it to a point, but then I also think that he is really enjoying the attention and he's living it up. It just, to me, it seemed very much like the miniseries when he was just the greatest scientist in the entire world and everybody adored yeah, him and here we are again. He's He thought he was God. Now he thinks it in a different way. Yeah. Okay, we have a couple of voicemails. I will play one now and we'll defer one for later when we talk about the episode. Hello, Galactica Quorum. This is Lucia from California, and I really enjoy your podcast. And I just wanted to call in response to episode 41's attack on Jane Espenson. Um, <laughs> I think she's a fabulous writer, and I'm. she wrote one of my favorite episodes of Firefly, Shindig. I mean, come on. Sad Little King of Sad Little Hill and the duel and the big pink dress. I mean... Lots of fun. And also, you know, she wrote a really great episode of Buffy, the Earshot episode. And if you remember, that's the one where Buffy can read minds, and it's like this powerful commentary on the pain that every individual has. But obviously, everyone has their own opinion, but I just wanted to put out there that Jane Espenson is awesome, and uh, I think she's very talented. Okay, love your podcast. Bye. First of all, I want to say thank you for disagreeing with us so nicely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we don't usually get that. I have nothing to say. I mean, I understand completely. I did not realize she had wrote Earshot. I guess what happens is when you see someone write five episodes that you can't stand, your mind kind of blocks out that, yes, they've probably written ones you'd like too. And I'm not denying she's not talented. Again, you know, she's out there writing shows I watch. It's not me. To me, on average, I have liked the episodes of shows she has written less than I've liked episodes that other writers do. And that could just be my taste, but I understand the point. Well, the three that she's written for this show, the first one, which is our third podcast, that was Galactica Core number three. Now you can go back and listen to how we felt about that one. Which I, one was that? That was The Passage. Oh, see, I didn't mind that one so much. I didn't like that one because that, one was that, one? that was when they have to go through the Stellar Nebula, and I thought it was a lot of stuff they borrowed from other shows, and yeah. I didn't feel the characterizations were quite right back then. I just they thought it was, I always thought it was okay. And then uh, Dirty Hands I didn't like because I thought Adama and Rosalind were not portrayed the way I thought they realistically would have behaved. Although I have to somewhat correct myself because I believe Ron Moore said in a podcast that he actually wrote the bit about Adama putting Kelly up against the bulkhead. So I absolve the writer of that, which I thought was Wait, just what ridiculous. Should, what happened in that episode? Oh boy. Okay. Do I not remember this episode? Dirty Hands is the one where they have the, the union problems on the manufacturing refinery ship. Oh yeah. They strike and Rosalind and Adama take this really hard line. And, and they were going to threaten to kill Callie. And they're going to kill Callie against the bulk. You know, they're putting against the bulkhead and they're going to shoot her. I thought that her. episode was really slow. That wasn't moving along for me. It was me. a politics episode. It was a polemic. Yeah. And, I, and again, every time you get into an episode that revolves around politics, you, you fall in that danger. You fall into the Phantom Menace danger. And for this one, I was actually emailing back and forth with Matthew in the UK. And he liked the episode Escape Velocity a lot. I basically said there are some individual scenes which I really, really liked. I thought the Adama scene was great with Tyrrell and the bar. I thought the Rosalind scene with Balthor and the Cell was great. But just overall, the show had very good individual scenes, but was far less than the sum of its parts. Either way, we're not saying she's horrific. 
We're just saying we didn't necessarily like some of the shows. I mean, she didn't write uh, Unfinished Business, so I don't even know who did that one. That's probably... Yeah, but everybody loves that episode. Mm-hmm. That That's the, the boxing, boxing one. Ugh. That one splits Ugh. people. You know, I fall on the side that it was crap, but... I tend not to like being hit upside the head with an anvil. <laughs> and that's what the boxing episode was to me. Ooh, let's fight it out in a controlled, sterile environment. And then we'll all go back to being one happy, scared bunch of people running from Cylons. <laughs> okay, before we get to the discussion of this episode, I have a promo to play for a podcast. The podcast is called Process Diary, which chronicles the making of an animated series. Interesting. And have a listen. Welcome to a new year of The Process Diary, the blog and podcast that goes behind the scenes of an animated series as it's being written, conceptualized, and produced. Join me, Paul Kajeji, as I create the pilot for Character Development, an exciting sci-fi action-adventure set in Earth's distant future. Witness raw, unedited sessions of sketching and conceptual production. Listen to interviews with today's cutting-edge creatives in the online new media world. Podcast novelists, online comic artists and fellow animators. And glean some insight into their creative process along the way. So where's it all happening? Swing by theprocessdiary.blogspot.com or search for The Process Diary in the iTunes Music Store or your favorite podcatcher. Theprocessdiary.blogspot.com Hope to see you there. Okay, I just want to remind everyone that Pike has been doing a fabulous job putting video recaps together. and we need to switch it up on occasion and maybe have like me or Jason or Dimitri read the... Wouldn't that be cool? I'd be all for that. <laughs> you want to write them up? I, no, I don't want to write them. I'll oh, read sure. them. Oh, <laughs> sure. Okay. She just wants the glory. <laughs> she doesn't want to do the work. Uh, wow. You know, it's not like we'd ever felt this way about Michelle. But for her to actually come out now and admit it really just crystallizes a lot. Whatever. All right. Never mind. I do think he's doing an excellent job given the material he's had to work with. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, Jason, of you. <laughs> Okay, I actually had fun writing this one. I did something a little bit different. I don't know if it really works, but sometimes you got to mix it up. Oh, Lord. This is for the episode, The Road Less Traveled. Chief is taking his role as a singing Cylon to the next level, shaving his head and adapting the persona of lead singer of the Smashing Pycons. Over the wireless, he hears Baltar's pirate broadcast. Baltar preaches about why people are frustrated with unresponsive gods. Emptiness is loneliness, and loneliness is cleanliness, and cleanliness is godliness, and gods are empty, just like me. Hate leads to suffering. On the Demetrius, Starbuck is oblivious to the brewing discontent of the crew. On a Viper patrol, she encounters a damaged heavy raider. The sole survivor is brought aboard, Leoben. The crew is suspicious, except for Starbuck, and she has the Cylon sent to her quarters. Leoben wants her to understand her destiny. No matter where you are, I can still hear you when you dream. You travel very far, like a star. All of those yesterdays coming around. Leoben says the Cylons are engaged in civil war and offers an alliance. Aid his faction, and then the humans and Cylons will converge to find Earth together. Could it really be true? Cylons fighting each other? If only they had someone on board familiar with the Cylon culture. An expert, or even a native, so to speak. Chief is drawn to hear Baltar speak. Baltar notices him and asks him to take his hand in reconciliation because, quote, Callie would have wanted it. Chief gives him a hand, a hand to the throat. Shaken by the encounter, Chief returns to his rack, puts a gun to his head, and nearly pulls the trigger. Despite all his rage, he is still just a rat in a cage. Then some will say, what is lost can never be saved. 
Speaking of rage, tired of the griping and the grumping, Kilo gives Lieutenant Whiny Pants the beatdown when the upstart redshirt starts talking mutiny. Baltar visits Tyrrell to apologize and tries to explain that people evolve and change. He tells Chief, believe, believe in me, that life can change, that you're not stuck in vain. We're not the same, we're different tonight. Chief is silent during Baltar's confession, but at last offers his hand in a gesture of absolution and acceptance. Starbuck informs the crew they are going to Leoban's base star. Heel says he can't do that order and pistol whips himself for insubordination. Starbuck promotes Gated Exo, but he also refuses to comply, and she shoots him in the head. No, no. She's cuckoo, but not cane crazy. Starbuck finally catches on that the crew has mutinied. To be continued. Dun, dun, dun. Very good, Brian. Very good. Next week we'll have a summary off, and we'll see if Michelle can match that. No. There's a lot of smashing pumpkins in there. <laughs> Thank you for catching the references. <laughs> I'm sorry, but the whole episode, every time I saw Chief, that's all I could think about was Billy Corrigan. <laughs> Can you redo it now with a uh, Midnight Oil theme? <laughs> I think that would dun, be good. Dun, dun. Like, that, would, that would work. Yeah. Maybe a Sinead O'Connor thing. How can we sleep when our ships are burning? Sinead O'Connor? <laughs> Nothing compares to you every time you see a picture of Baltar. R.E.M., Michael Stipe. I mean, mm-hmm. come on. Oh, yeah. Great bald-headed performers <laughs> discussing Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> so, what do you think? Much better. And in fact, you could switch up two scenes and you could have had two good episodes. Instead of ending the previous episode with Baltar giving that craptacular speech and calling that the end, you end... The Baltar stuff with him getting the crap beaten out of him before Lee rescues him, so you don't like, okay, how far is he going to take it? Then you immediately go to Demetrius, and you kind of compress a little bit, Mm -hmm. and you end that episode with Kara coming on a damaged heavy raider and hearing Leoban's voice saying, I knew I'd find you, to be continued. And then you've got two good episodes with real cliffhangers. Like the hero's model. You end on something that makes you want to just go to the next episode. And that's what was missing from the previous episode that was totally... And like I said, switching up a couple scenes and you would have had it. Yeah, that's true. This was so much better. And I don't want to say it was better because I'm comparing it directly to Escape Velocity. I'm saying it was better because it was better. Every commercial break, I'm like, ooh. I enjoyed it. It was much better. I think every time Leoban is on the show, I'm very confused by everything that comes out of his mouth. (laughs) I don't know what he's talking about ever. He's slightly less confusing than a hybrid, but he's yeah. still pretty close. And Kara saying, hey, come to my quarters. Yeah. Gee, wonder why the husband came in and beat the crap out of him. Yeah. She's <laughs> hmm. like, Anders, stop. No. What are you doing? He was just holding onto my hips and getting fresh with me. <laughs> the character of Starbuck really, she went through a phase in like season one or two where she was the rebel. And then she went through the phase where she was... This a-hole, basically, who was angry at everybody. And now she's the phase where she's this crazy nut job. It's not that I feel like any of those wasn't true to the character. It's just interesting that I think even more so than Baltar, this character has gone through such a range. I like what they're doing with her. Yeah, I have no problems. I mean, she's taken the whole religious manifestation to the next level. At first, just being the instrument of Rosalind going to get the arrow now buying it into herself completely. I think that's part of the reason Rosalind doesn't like her. She kind of took the crazy mantle from her. It's like, well, there's only room for one psychotic religious you know, bitch on this ship, and it's me. Yeah. By the way, speaking of Starbuck, 
best eulogy ever. Loved it. Perfect. I'm not good at this. It's war. She died. Let's move on. Even if everybody else was thinking, it's your fault because you brought that thing. Did you notice that they went from having five crew members to 20 in this episode? They did add a lot more red shirts. Well, Hot Dog was on there too now. I th- I didn't notice him previously. He was probably in patrol. I remember the first time they showed Demetrius that there was, in the background, some other guys. I didn't think there was like another dozen people. And is it just me or all the Viper pilots on that? Which is really funny because, again, not just like the discussion from last week about sending all your Viper pilots, but... They couched this as such a secret mission, and then they send out half the pilots. It's like, do you think everybody would call Galactic and say, going, hey, I haven't seen 27 people in the past week. I wonder where they all went. If you're going to have a stealth, kind of quiet mission, five, six. Yeah, but everybody knows that the Demetrius was sent off. I'm just shocked that almost the entire Viper... Right. I think it's funny that this sewage vessel has a CIC and it has room for a crew of two dozen people, an armament. I almost wish they had not taken that little bit of subterfuge and said, we're going to send you a sewage vessel. I mean, if you're going to trick it out like it is and make us think, wow, they sure modify that to the gills. Why don't they just say, okay, we have a spare military asset that's not going to be able to take on a base star. It's a small cruiser, small Corvette or whatever. You take that instead of coming up with this sewage vessel thing because they've made it look like it's basically a military ship, and it's so not. There's no way they could possibly make it. I see it plausible only in the sense that in the situation they're in, you could argue that when they did have breaks, part of their plan was to identify vessels in the fleet that could be upconverted to a little bit more of a military asset. (laughs) So number one on the priority list was the... Sewage vessel. Well, there wouldn't be a lot of people to move off of it. Things to do today. Convert poop ship. Check. <laughs> Here's our second voicemail. Hey, guys. It's Amanda from Pennsylvania again. I just have to make a quick comment on the episode. Me and Infirm were watching it, and we liked it. Well, he didn't really like it because he thought everybody was a little whiny. But I enjoyed it. It was not that bad. Not that one. Well, a little bit, but not that but my only thing is, is it me or is Athena really not doing much? I mean, Hilo, I'm so glad I've given Hilo a much bigger role. I'm all for that. But to me, it's like Athena was off to the sidelines just not saying much. She was there with Matthias, and she just gets concerned there and a couple of throwaway lines. But it's like cricket, cricket, she just stands there. And considering they bring a Leoba and a Cylon aboard, they would all be like, hey, what do you think of this? Is it? Is he lying? Is he, bull- is he full of crap? But no, she just stands there. And I just wanted to know, if, am I the only one that thinks that? And also, where's Hera? That's a question I've been wondering. Where is that little girl? All right, talk to you guys later. Bye. I'm so glad she called because I had exactly the same I agree. Wondering. I thought that. You have Leoben come on board, the natural thing to do would be have her go and feel him out and see what he's talking about. Or they could be like, what's going on? Because is this possible that they could possibly have this thing? And that could have been a cool scene of him sitting next to her or across from her and saying, your sisters are allied with us, except for that one boomer. I don't see, know why that didn't happen. I don't understand. Like, they bring him on, and yet they never refer to her for anything. 
Right. Here, you're bringing a Cylon on, and he's telling you about the silence of a war. And you have a Cylon who is loyal to you, and you don't ask her for any sort of advice at all. It's that, and I think they're missing a lot of stuff potentially with Anders, too. Anders, it doesn't have to be a scene. It could be beats within a scene where he just kind of once in a while goes and gives her a, a glance or kind of looks at her like, can she tell? Can she tell that I'm a Cylon? Obviously not, because they also had the scene where Anders was looking at Leoben pretty dead on for a while. But I also, and apparently that's only a power that the fighters possess. But I would think that he would be looking at her like seeing her as a peer now and just seeing her in a different light. And to the point where at some point she might come up to him and be like, dude, what's up? You know, and not sensing that he is a Cylon, but sensing that he's looking at her differently. You'd be like, come on, what's going on? Yeah. And you also could have put Athena, not that you wanted to kill her. But wouldn't Athena have been the perfect choice to inspect the heavy raider? Yeah. I agree. But, you know, they can't kill her off. Right. Well, you could have had her on. Yeah, exactly. I think I've heard that the actress that plays here is in a contract dispute. (laughs) Yeah. At at what point do we have the Battlestar Galactica nursery? I mean, there is is a daycare facility because there's been scenes where they've taken Nikki there. Yeah. But... You mean you're leaving Hera there? One, you're leaving the... Oh, I don't understand this. She's the Cylon hybrid baby. And everybody is so concerned about this baby, and now you're just leaving her in the care of the daycare facility? Well, plus... Now, granted, it would have been a good scene, maybe, too. Wouldn't one of the parents have objected to both of them being sent off on this mission? Apparently not. And leaving the child behind? I think Athena would. Hela would never... Yeah, Athena would be like, you've got Raptor pilots. Send them. Leave me here. Yeah. Hilo would have been like, okay, I've been ordered. I have to think that because Athena is on board, they have a plan for her to be on this mission, aside from just being next to Hilo. So based on that, I think that they will not be going back to the fleet. Because if they did go back to the fleet, the whole little side trip would be this pointless exercise. where They they picked up the Oban, but other than that, not fulfilling story-wise, really, for them to go out there and just come right back. So I think they're either going to go find something new, or they will actually go to the base star, in which case that would give Athena an opportunity to see her old chums again and uh, have Anders really, from a first-hand perspective, see a Cylon ship and get further wigged out. For all of them, it would be new, wouldn't it? I think the only one who would have seen it was Athena. So if they saw the interior of a base star, they'd be like, whoa. Dude, whoa. Whoa. You mean AI? One thing which I kind of found not satisfying or realistic was the whole mutiny of the crew. Number one, if they knew that the length of the mission was a certain amount of days for them to have been whining and complaining on day 21, a couple episodes ago, that really makes it even worse because if you know, you have an amount of time when you're going back, then at that point you just like suck it up and like, just keep thinking a couple more weeks, a couple more weeks, not this whining and complaining, but more than that, I didn't, quite follow how they are going to disobey the order to essentially not go back to the fleet because they're on a scout mission, right? But it's also, they're in a war, so it it is a combat mission. So they have to know that anytime they go on a mission that they are expendable and they could be having to sacrifice themselves. Sort of like in Razor, when the crew goes aboard the base star, right? They go in, they just didn't stop halfway and go like, if we go any further, we're not going to be able to get back for our rendezvous point, so we better turn around. No, they went and they did it, and they realized that some of them might have to stay behind and die. So I feel like they should have known when they go on this mission, okay, there's a chance we might not go back. And to complete the mission, we will have to jump to here, 
And they're like, well, it could be a trap. It could be this. Well, it could be. That's the operative phrase there. But again, they have a mission. So the turnabout where they mutiny, I don't know. It didn't feel right. I think what they're trying to show here is that they have no trust and no faith in their leader. And they think she's making the wrong decisions. And she's putting all of their lives in jeopardy based off of her uninformed decisions. Right. I agree with that. That's why they're mutinying against her because they don't, they shouldn't have to necessarily blindly follow her. They should have some sort of faith in her. Yeah, I agree with that. I guess it's just that she did have that moment where she had the eulogy and she said, we have this mission and we're going to go forth. And the weird thing was when Hilo flip-flopped, he beat the guy down for talking about mutiny. And then just because Athena goes, come on, we don't really have to do this, do we? And he kind of goes, okay, dear. And he turns around the other way. Okay, maybe they don't believe in her, but he could be the one who just like does a tie and goes, gosh, damn it. Stop the fracking blah, blah. We're going to do this mission because we need to go and find Earth. And that's our mission. And we lay our lives in the line if we have to do it. Are you knocking Hilo? I am for this one time. <laughs> I'm sorry. See, I don't criticize just Lee. I'm... Uh, I thought the mutiny was uh, was fine. I thought it worked. I think it was necessary. You keep saying mutiny like it's past tense. We're in the middle of a to-be-continued. We don't know what's going to happen. That's true. It may not even follow Well, you say us. it worked. I mean, do you feel like they're going to go back to the fleet now? No. No. Okay, then. So <laughs> no, how- but I think it was plausible. It was plausible for them to go and mutiny against her because they think she's a nutter, and now she wants to go and jump to the open's based are based off of what Leoben said. They're not going to believe him. Right. Flat out. They're not going to be like, oh, well, if Starbuck said that Leoben's okay, I guess he's okay. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I just think that they were really quick to want to use that as an excuse to go back. Well, any other things about this episode? I'm looking forward to the next one. Um, in a good way, not in a please be better way. Right. How about- in a, I hope it's just as good, if not better. Oh, are we grading? I'm going to start, and I'll give it an A. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it an A. Granted, it's a little bit on the curve, but it's an A. And on my scale, it's a B. <laughs> Don't laugh. No, you, no, you know what? Your scale is starting to actually make sense to me. I understand why you gave it a B. Well, that's all I all I need to know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good episode. A few things that kept me from giving it an A. Well, he watches it much closer. It's true, he does. Because he has to go back and make pithy references during the summary. Right. Which was really funny. Thanks. I will say one, Michael Reimer directed this one. Great job. There's a couple camera things that I really enjoyed seeing. The one which I will bring up is the one where uh, most of the show is shot in handheld, so it's all herky-jerky and whatnot. But there's one where Tyrrell is lying on his bed. He has the gun in his chest or on his belly. And the camera zooms back. And it, it's not moving at all. It's just a, it's a regular zoom. It's just zoom out, zoom out, zoom out. And it came to a point where you saw the pistol. And I just thought that was really good choice. It seems like it's a small thing, but to me, I caught it because the rest of the show, like I said, is shot a certain way. And that coming out with that slow zoom out, really nice. This has been a fracking podcast, the Galactica Quorum, show number 42. We have a website, galacticacorum.com, voicemail 206-350-6756. Please send us an email or a voicemail. And again, our email is gquorum at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
I get to go play with my new leopard. <laughs> I got upgraded at you lunch. Have a new kitty? Now, yeah, got a mountain lion at home. <laughs> we can go in so many avenues with this one. <laughs> mm-hmm. 